This is the SEN Talks podcast from Galdard's SEN. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to SEN Talks. Um, we're here with Charlotte Hadfield, who is a barrister from 3PB Chambers. Charlotte and I have been working together for many, many years and have seen many, many cases together, which makes working with her uh, fantastic. Uh, but she's also brilliant at what she does. And I um, and us as a team only really uh, ask her to come for all of our most difficult cases because she is so brilliant. So today we're going to be talking about waking day curriculum. And I say waking day curriculum in inverted commas because judges give us a slap on the wrist sometimes for calling it that and referring to it um, as a waking day curriculum. We're going to talk about that uh, as well. So it's basically an extended day um, education outside of normal school hours. Um, That's the type of thing that we're talking about, residential placements. Um, So, Charlotte, I'm going to... Get you to introduce yourself first of all, um, and then um, ask you the pertinent question of what is a waking day curriculum because we talk about it so much, but there's so much dispute over exactly what it is. Okay, so um, firstly, hello everybody. My name's Charlotte Hadfield, and I am the head of the education team at 3PB Barristers. We are a nationally ranked team of specialists in all things education law related. Um, and we're also all very nice, which is a thing that I like to add in there, because I think that sometimes people can be a little bit scared about the idea of a barrister. But the reality is obviously is, is often a lot cuddlier than people think it's going to be. Um, so what what is a waking day curriculum? Um, well, the, the term waking day curriculum is a lawyer's term. It's not a therapeutic or clinical term at all. And quite often when you say to say, an educational psychologist that doesn't do much of this work, um, that you think your child might need a waking day curriculum, they'll look a bit confused. A waking day curriculum is lawyer shorthand for a situation where a child needs programmes of education outside of normal school hours. So whenever your child needs educational provision that for whatever reason needs to take place outside roughly, say, 8.45 to 3.30 p.m., that would be classed as a waking day curriculum. It, I would say in 95% of cases, you're talking about residential curriculum, um, as in um, a place at a residential school, but not necessarily and not always. Yeah, so we have, I mean, typically a lot of the clients, my clients um, and my children who come to me um, have, I mean, it varies, it varies massively, as you know, Charlotte, I mean, we've had many, waking day curriculum cases um, where the young person's diagnosis is different different, and each case is individual but generally I would say a lot of my waking day cases my children have a diagnosis of autism mm. um, they have some sometimes social emotional mental health difficulties pathological demand avoidance um, yeah. or there's uh, there's difficulties managing their SEN at home as well. They need to be taught life skills. That's a big one. So mm. I think evidentially, I mean, there's different ways, isn't there, of getting or of arguing for a waking day curriculum. Um, so I think maybe if we go through that for for sort of our listeners to understand that, maybe mm. that might be helpful. Yeah, I think the first point to make is you're 
you're almost always going to need expert evidence to support a case for a waking day curriculum. Exactly. The most likely expert that that will come from is an educational psychologist, yeah. because the educational psychologist is both clinical and educational in a way that, say, an occupational therapist or a speech and language therapist probably won't be. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of definitive list of types of children or types of condition that would lead to a waking day curriculum because, you know, all children are unique. And the way that autism, for example, looks in one child can be very different to the way that autism looks in another child. So one child with autism who has average cognitive ability might be absolutely fine in a mainstream school with some adjustments. Another child with autism and average cognitive ability might really struggle in a mainstream school. Um, So what would we be looking for? So generally speaking, in the cases that I've done where a waking day curriculum has been needed, the issues have been around transitions and that's not necessarily exclusively to do with autism but often comes up as you know so to say with children who who have autism so um if your child is very very anxious about moving from one place or one setting to another um and they also have that uh that's those sorts of difficulties with generalizing skills and that kind of slightly less flexibility in the way that they think and approach things that can often come with an autism diagnosis um a waking day curriculum might be suitable for a child who is just really not coping very well with going to school um children who need to overlearn yeah is quite is quite common so children who need more time yeah yeah i mean that's a that i think is actually a really common argument that isn't always fleshed out as well as it can be in the expert evidence but Mm -hmm. you know sometimes you have children who they have distractibility or attention issues and they're not necessarily going to be able to do all of their learning within the normal school day but you need to be able to seize opportunities for learning in the evening so uh, for those children a waking day curriculum might be called for um over learning where you've got children who really need a lot of focus on particular issues in order to learn and then they need to practice those things a lot uh, and they need to be taught them across two different settings because they again might be struggling to generalize so you know if you teach a child again kind of overusing autism here as an example it could also be a child i guess with um severe anxiety yeah exactly but you know you might find with some children that if you teach them for example how to use a washing machine at school they'll be fine using it at school but then when you take them home and you ask them to use the washing machine at home they won't be able to use it because they don't they 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 struggle with the idea that the rules would be the same for that machine in a different setting yeah exactly yeah exactly so it's generalizing those um those skills outside of where they're actually learning them because you'll find and i think that I think that sort of comes up evidentially as quite difficult as well, because we find that the school have a really different, a lot of the time, a really different view of the child or young person than parents do at home. So if we use the washing machine example, parents or school will say, Johnny's fine. He can use the washing machine. No problem. We just tell him to do it and he'll go do it. And mum and dad are like, well, we've taught him how to do it several times and he he can't do it with with our one at home. It's because he he or she will associate that skill at school only and it's not for home um Mm. and you get you I think we sort of we find this in some of our children I find this in some of my children a lot that you know they think that what they do learn at school should just stay at school and they won't use whatever it is that they've learned at school at home because in their minds 
it's a different setting and yeah, home yeah. is not for learning and yeah. home is not for using those skills that you've learned at school exactly so, so they're not just practicing at home they need yeah. they need to be taught how to use the same thing in two different settings and they need yeah. that teaching in both settings yeah yeah um I think um so I think evidentially that's that's that you're right in that um, and we get all of uh, a lot of our um, evidence from our educational psychologists sometimes our clinical psychiatrists as well uh, we get that evidence from but I think it's important for our listeners um, to understand that we can say you and I even you and I for example if we're working on a case can say um, it looks like this person this young person needs a waking day curriculum but a tribunal won't take us seriously unless we have that evidence and unless no. that evidence is tested. No, we we can't give that evidence. Um, yeah. <laughs> barrister, I mean, barristers and solicitors can't give evidence at all, obviously. Um, and the evidence that I wouldn't like to rule out the possibility that a parent could give the tribunal that evidence, but it's won't be given it's, as much weight it as, won't be no yeah. uh, not because not because parents aren't trustworthy I wouldn't say the tribunal takes no. that position at all but more just because it's a big step to remove a child from home which is generally what a waking day curriculum involves and send them to school away from their family is a big step to take and the tribunal wants to be very very satisfied that somebody who is independent and expert considers that that is the thing that needs to happen before they will do it. I suppose the other thing that we haven't talked about, so I would say, is that there are some children with, I think you mentioned social, emotional and mental health needs. So children with attachment issues, uh, children who've experienced trauma in early life, um, children who perhaps have been looked after or who have, you know, been been in the care system, Um, children who have real difficulty because of what they've been through regulating their emotions and who may behave in a very challenging way when they are very very anxious these children often also will will at least benefit from a residential curriculum but again you would really need the evidence from either an educational psychologist or a psychiatrist or clinical psychologist to say that it was necessary yeah and i think um i think that's another element of of um the whole waking day uh, curriculum world as well because obviously uh, EHCPs have a social care section as well yeah so there are some um, placements that we have achieved by arguing that a residential placement is necessary from a social care point of view mm-hmm. um, and for that we've obtained um, independent evidence from uh, an independent social worker yeah. who has explained why um, that's necessary from that point of view have you got any experience in dealing with cases from or residential placement or waking day curriculum from a social care point of view? Yes. So I, I would say ideally you would make your case on educational grounds if you can. And that's because of the difference um, between the powers that the tribunal has on educational provision, because the tribunal can order particular special educational provision and a particular placement in sections F and I of the plan. Um, when it comes to social care, the tribunal can only make recommendations. And so ideally you would you would you would get it ordered as part of the educational part of the EHC plan. But an independent social worker can be very I would say their evidence can be absolutely crucial in terms of establishing what the social care side of things is at home, because the educational experts won't necessarily do that in quite the same way. Yeah. And particularly 
in terms of applying social care um, considerations without the very big emphasis on keeping children within their community that local authorities have. I mean, that is an important consideration and it's one that the tribunal will always have regard to, you know, not not taking the child away from their local community, course, letting yeah. them. But 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 local authorities are often very, very focused on that yes, and not and they may not necessarily be as focused on the impact on the family, the child, other siblings, perhaps um, of, of that child remaining at home in a situation that parents are finding very, very difficult to manage. Yeah, of course. Um, and it is a big consideration because we do see when there's one sibling that has SEN and the others um, or the other or the others don't, then the dynamic in the household is difficult. We see that child needs yeah. attention as well. They are still they are still our parents' children as well. So I think social care evidence is good to sort of for the for the panel to see inside the home, see what's yeah. going on at home as well. Um, yeah. It can also be useful for costs, actually, because if you were so sometimes you have a situation where the local authority might say this child doesn't need a waking day curriculum. What this child needs is more what this child needs is social care support. And if you have an independent social worker who assesses the kind of respite care, the kind of um, the, the, the level of social care, that would be needed in terms of hours of support for the child. Let's say you have a child who um, really you, you, you as parents struggle to keep them safe. Let's say you have a child that has very pronounced sensory needs, um, absconds sometimes, yeah. um, climbs out of windows. Open I've had doors, clients. Yeah. Exactly. I've had clients. Runs across children, roads. Yeah, like very intense sensory seeking behaviours. Like I've had um, clients whose children will leap into rivers because they want to have a particular kind of sensory feedback. Um, or who will try and choke themselves because they have a, you know, it's not to do with kind of suicidal ideation. They just they just really need a particular kind of feedback and they're finding these very dysfunctional ways of getting it. Um, and often when you if you have an independent social worker who assesses the um, care that that child will need, you may well be able to say to the local authority and the tribunal, if you're in a tribunal case, well, look, once you actually look at the social care hours that my child will need and the amount that the local authority will be paying to keep my child at home going to this day school, you might as well send them to the residential school that I'm asking for because there's only a few thousand pounds difference between them. Exactly. Mm. And that's um, that leads actually really nicely uh, onto the next topic that I wanted to talk about that's obviously related in that um, we... I used to work for the local authorities, you know, and the waking day curriculum cases, the residential curriculum cases um, were the most expensive, obviously, and were the cases that we would fight the most because it was, you know, some of these placements, we're looking at £100,000, £150,000 per annum for one child, for one young person. So, it is only natural that the local authority are going to look for ways to try and reduce that bill and meet the cost locally, keep that child or young person in the local area and provide everything that's needed in sections B and F at home without yeah. the need for a waking day. I found what what's your experience been with local authorities fighting them? Because I think in my experience, it is very rare that a local authority will agree to a waking day curriculum to a residential placement without the need for a final hearing 
it has on occasion happened when mm. the evidence is really good, when the when it's very clear that this is what the young person needs um, and there's not sort of local authority can't physically come up with anything to match it and to tick anything off the box, you know, tick all of the provision in Section F off the box. But I've found that local authorities tend to fight it all the way to final hearing. Yeah, I think it, it varies to some extent depending on the local authority because some local authorities um, are very pragmatic about what they can prove. And I'm sure it also um, depends on the level of funding that that local authority has available to them. So there's there's some variance, I think, across the country. But generally, most residential schools, not not all of them, but most residential schools, even if you're talking about a 38 week curriculum, so a normal school year, if you're talking about a residential curriculum, it's going to be probably close to or substantially over £100,000 a year. And I think probably when you're looking at that kind of money out of the public purse, potentially over a period of three, four, five, six years, um, I suspect that a lot of local authorities almost feel that they have a duty to fight it and let the tribunal be the arbiter because it's such a large amount of money. Yeah, um, it's a lot more easier to say um, we were ordered to pay this bill rather than we mm. decided to concede and pay this bill. Yeah, I think I think I think that's part of it. I think also in a case where so as we know, local authorities will consult with local schools and quite often there will be local day schools or there may there may be mainstream schools. There may be special schools um, who will consider that they can meet that child's needs. And sometimes these decisions are made before the bulk of the expert evidence comes in, although some say, as you and I both know, sometimes the expert evidence comes in and the school still says, well, we don't agree with that. We've got children like that here and we think we can meet need. Yeah. Um, and I think. To be fair to local authorities, I suspect that when they've got a school that's saying to them they can meet need. It becomes harder to say, well, we're going to agree to the waking day curriculum unless you can really see that that school's case for saying they can meet need is just, you know, really not workable. When agreement does come to a waking day curriculum, in my experience, it tends to come quite late. So either it comes almost before you've issued your appeal, if they're going to agree at an early stage, or it comes quite late on once all of the evidence is in place and the local authority knows who they'll be calling. And so it can be very difficult for parents, I think, who um, kind of slog it all the way through to the final hearing and then find out, say, a week before or a couple of days before or on the morning that the local authority is not going to argue about schools. Yeah, it is. It's really frustrating. But I mean, coming from um, sort of working on both sides, I find that. So when I was working for the local authority, sometimes I would find that if I was arguing a point or if I was saying something to a particular witness, their mind would not be focused on the case until about a week before the hearing when they had to read the bundle go through the evidence and actually focus their mind on what it is that they're actually going to have to be saying and arguing in tribunal and it's usually only at that point where they think hold on a second this actually doesn't make case because I was looking at it from only one angle but now I've seen all of the evidence and I've read everything it makes sense and um, I don't think I'm going to have to be arguing this so I mean I always try and tell my clients that <clears throat> If we've got a no the whole way or if we're sort of hitting a brick wall a lot of the time, it's never really personal. Mm. Um, it's a mixture of 
sometimes disorganisation, underfunding, understaffing. Um, like I said, not actually looking at the case in any sort of detail until the last minute, until it's um, urgent, as it were. And um, I know it's very difficult to to say to a client or to parents, try not to take this personally, because of course they're going to take it personally, because this is their child, right? Yeah. Um, but try not to, because to the local authority, it's casework and they're, they're trying to get through this massive bulk of, of stuff. And it's not like they've got a vendetta against you personally. No, I mean, I think, yeah, the, these cases are so hard. I think that when you're the parent of a child and you can see how much they're struggling, the local authority's perspective can seem so at odds with what you're experiencing that you get to a point where it's hard to believe that it's not deliberate. But I would agree with you. I think that it's nine times out of 10, it's driven by um, concerns about funding because the local authority has to. I mean, this is not the parents problem. I always say to clients where the local authority is coming from is that it has to it has a limited pot of money to fund the special educational needs of everybody in its area. And that's not your problem as a parent. But it's likely that, you you know, nobody from the local authority goes into this line of work in order to mess things up for children who are disabled. Yeah, I do think there are some there are some cases that can be very fraught, I think. And a good example of those, and I think we've had a couple of them, is where you have a child who. I mean, again, I'm going to use autism as the example because I think it's the best example. You have a child who's average of average ability or maybe even very you know above average, you know, super bright. Um, they're very, very anxious in their mainstream day school because <laughs> the environment is just not very, you know, they're, they, they're, they're having sensory overload. Maybe the classes are too big. Um, they're struggling with the social communication because although they're very bright, obviously autism goes with a certain amount of difficulty with kind of subtleties of language and stuff like that. Yeah. And a nonverbal um, body, not nonverbal communication. And as we know, those children, there's that sort of pot bottle effect, you know, where those children hold it together and mask what they're dealing with during the school day. And then they come home and they let all of that anxiety out. And the result is the school is seeing one kind of child and the parents are seeing a very different kind of child. Yeah. And I think sometimes in those cases, you do get a situation where the parent feels very strongly that the school's attitude is kind of, well, there's nothing wrong at school because the child is fine at school. And therefore, something is happening at home that's making the child this way. And I do think that schools in that situation can sometimes see it that way. And that's very hard for parents, you know, to feel course, as though yeah. they are being blamed for their for their child's anxiety when they know that what's actually happening is their child's exercising this superhuman effort at school and then letting it out at home because they feel safe at school. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, because they feel safe at home. Yeah. yeah. And you, you get sort of things in reports that say stuff like um, lack of structure at yeah. home or, you know, lack of discipline or, you yeah. know, this feeling that, to, like, once just, you yeah, get to school bad refusal, parenting, yeah. exactly, you get to school <laughs> refusal and there's this implication that parents just aren't trying hard enough to send their child in, yeah. whereas parents are looking at a child who is, you know, at breaking point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you think to yourself, like, what must it take? Because all of, I mean, all of my clients' children are very well looked after. Everybody, you know, they dote on their children 
it to to the point of obsession my all of all of my clients children are very 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 well looked after so I always think to myself what must it take for a parent to be saying I think my child needs to go to a residential setting yeah it, it you know and I think sometimes local authorities maybe misunderstand that and they think oh you know everybody wants a residential mm-hmm. setting but who wants to be away from their child for so long really yeah. who who does it's not it's not anyone's first choice it's not no. not not that I can see any of from any of my clients it's it's never their first choice it's always no. the last option for them I always think that what what all parents want I've never met a parent who didn't want their child to be able to go to a mainstream school yeah I agree that's what everybody wants everybody wants a child who can go to a mainstream day school and come home and and, and manage and thrive and it, it's I, I think realizing that your child maybe is not is not that child is very very hard and so when as a parent you've got to deal with this kind of unspoken narrative that you don't really want you want something special for your child and you're maybe embellishing a bit or overestimating your child's difficulties that's a very hard thing that's a very hard thing to manage yeah I agree I agree and you know there's also the added stress and you know natural thoughts that I suppose a parent will will have in that my child has SEN has all of these needs I know my child best I'm going to be entrusting other people to look after my child you know at night times they, they, it's, it's a hugely vulnerable position to be putting your child in and it's a massive amount of trust that you're going to be putting in yeah. whatever placement that you've ultimately um, preferred and, and are arguing for at tribunal so I think there's from the local authority point of view sometimes a nonchalant sort of everybody just wants residential and parents have just yeah. you know said oh yeah we, we want residential on a whim but there's actually mm. so much that goes into that and I know my clients and I know that sort of um, I'm sure you've experienced your clients as well Charlotte have been like look we, we literally have no other option and even yeah. when they are saying residential they're saying you know hopefully in you know three or four years or whenever yeah. it is they can settle and they can come back and you yeah. know we can find a special school for them and ultimately maybe transition to a mainstream school because yeah. or they'll go into work so you know sometimes we're dealing yes. with older with older with, with with young people rather than children who you know they need that intensive life skills education and the hope is that if you give them that you might be able to put them in a position where they can be a bit more self-sufficient where and, and ultimately if we're talking about children and young people who are likely to need some level of assistance from the state all their lives it is in everybody's interest to try and make them as self-sufficient as you can at this stage because the opportunity you know the the time for an EHC plan runs from 0 to 25 after that there's still some opportunity for education (laughs) after under the care act but it's not it's not really the same as an adult yeah yeah so those opportunities for that intensive provision really will that you know the door the window closes at 25 yeah and we've um you know it's always been it's always been really clear for those of us who've been doing this for many years that the sooner you get the help for the child or young person the better uh, and the better their outcomes are at the end of their education or the end of the SEND regime mm-hmm. so i think um because w- what we shouldn't forget as well is for those 
particular types of young people who are always going to need some sort of help from the state it is to the local authorities benefit to try and address that and make and make themselves sufficient as possible before because it's only going to be adult social care who are then dealing with the repercussions of what education didn't address before I mean, you can sometimes get caught up, can't you, in a kind of internal funding issue where, oh, I mean, we've had some, you know, we've had some cases where it isn't, you know, it what's in dispute isn't really that the child needs residential care. Sometimes, or, or that the young person need, that needs residential care. Sometimes the dispute is whether it's a social care issue, in which case it should be the local authority from the local authority's perspective. They would want their so you know educate the education would say well it's up to social care and social care would say well it's up to education and and that does I mean of course the tribunal's not interested in that but sometimes that is the argument that's running tribunal and the tribunal will say well you know we're we're, we're not really interested in how it's funded internally because yeah. from our perspective the local authority is one body we're not interested in which internal department is funding it yeah and um, I, I think and that I think that's a really important point Charlotte to be completely honest with you because. Um, and I, th- I I would like to hope that sort of we've got all, all manner of people listening to this podcast and I hope that um, we have um, people from local authorities listening to this as well. And I can sympathise with that because when I first started working for the local authority um, and I first attended tribunal on a matter like that, when it was social care versus education, there was a dispute between whose pot the money was going to come out of. I relayed that to the tribunal thinking that they'd be understanding. And I literally got a knockback saying we don't care who pays for this yeah um, you are one body you are one local authority someone should pay for it we don't care who we're ordering it and that is a that is a discussion that you should have in yeah. private uh, in and amongst yourselves it's got nothing to do with us so just from just from my experiences as well I always you know when there is that that type of argument brewing and you can see it in the papers it's easy to I mean, to just pick up the phone and to the local authority and say, look, just from my experience, yeah. taking my appellant hat off and putting my LA hat back on, local authority isn't going to care. So fix that yourself and come to the table with yeah. a, a yes, because you're agreeing that someone will pay for it. You just don't know who. Yeah. And a lot of the time, the way these things are resolved is that you do get um, partnerships between. I mean, I don't think the parents should. it's interesting it's not something that makes a difference to the tribunal it is something that can be fruitfully discussed I think where you can sort of talk to the local authority about well you know should we get the CCG involved for example if you've got a child with um, physical disabilities and of course that's one of the things we haven't talked about so I would say maybe because where a child has very profound physical disabilities the argument about residential care becomes a lot more straightforward it really does it really does. Um, but that is another case where a waking day curriculum may be necessary where you've got a child whose 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 care needs are such that they're just not going to be able to get into a yeah. conventional school. Yeah. And we don't really get many cases like that, Charlotte. I mean, no, they don't because, really come through my door. very straightforward. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's I think that's why we probably haven't addressed it, because local authorities are quite amenable to that because it's very clear, like you said, very straightforward. Yeah. Um, and often, even if they think it's not educationally called for, once you tot up, you know, I mean, you might be talking about children and young people who need nursing care. Um, yeah. You know, once you actually tot up the value again of the hours that they would need support for, whether yeah. that's health hours, nursing hours, whether that's social care hours, you often get to a point where really it's going to be more cost effective and easier for them to go into a residential setting. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for, you know, the fact that you can see that that disability and it's visible, whereas the the type of SCN um, that we've been talking yeah. about so far, the autism, we you can't really see it. And like you um, said, sometimes at school, it's a completely different child, it's yeah. a completely different young person. If they've got severe anxiety and they're just sitting at the back of the class, not talking to anybody, not doing any work either, yeah. but not a problem because they're not, yeah. you know, throwing chairs about or screaming, making a lot of noise. They're just yeah. there, but not there, if, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. So that's a lot more difficult for, um, sort of, it's a lot more difficult for that to come through and for it to be a simple case. You really do have to get all the evidence um, for it. Um, how do you think, in your experience, how is sort of these type of arguments received by panels, do you think? Um, because sometimes we, you know, we hear arguments that uh, panels are more susceptible to um, residential. Sometimes they challenge it more, they test the evidence more. Sometimes, you know, I don't, what, what, what's your experience been with the panel? Well, to some extent, it depends on the panel. There are some differences. For example, I would say that the Welsh Tribunal probably has a slightly different approach to the question of um, education outside of the community than the English than the English um, Tribunal. But even within even within those tribunals, there is a huge amount of variation of starting point, if you like. Yep. So I think all of the tribunals look at these um, cases on the evidence and make their decision on the evidence. I think some judges have a starting point of not being that keen on waking day curriculums and some judges have a starting point of being receptive to it it will depend on the evidence in the bundle as well if you've got a bundle that clearly describes a child who is totally unable to perhaps has been out of education because they were completely unable to regulate in their previous school um if you've got strong psychiatric or educational psychology evidence clearly explaining in the reports that are in the bundle what the case for a waking day curriculum is, then that will sort of shift the tribunal in terms of starting point. But I would say they always test the evidence yeah. because they see that, it, you know, it goes back to what we were saying before. It really it really is yeah. a big decision to make. Um, I would say that the reasons that parents give for wanting waking day curriculum are significant as well. And it is really important, I think, as a parent to just focus your mind on the things that you're looking for, which are, um, you know, you're probably looking for um, a stable peer group between classes and residential, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you're probably looking for continuity of um, staff between mm -hmm. care and residential. You're probably looking for um, a solid programme of education that takes place outside of school as well as inside of school. So you'll be looking for specific things about educational provision. And I think that one thing that sometimes happens is some of the some residential schools, most of them are independent schools, obviously. Yeah. And most of them have quite not all of them, but most of them will have quite large grounds. Some of them are set up for children who can't and young people who can't learn in classrooms. So they might have working farms, they might have Forest horse riding, yeah. swimming, um, <laughs> little cafes that um, the children can work in, hydrotherapy. There might be all sorts of things that we would all want for our children, but which are not really going to be the reason you're sending your child there. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes a mistake that parents can make is 
they imagine their child really enjoying I don't know let's take horse riding I think horse riding is a really good example they they and they'll say something like oh and they'll be able to horse ride and that would be wonderful and I think you have to be careful as a parent about focusing on stuff like that yeah because stuff like that is lovely for any child I don't want to I mean we know that there are some children particularly with disabilities who really respond to animals in a way that you know it contact with animals opens up learning for them in a way that maybe other techniques of education just don't but I guess what I'm trying to say is you have to be really careful not to end up saying I want my child to go to a place that's got riding lessons and a swimming pool because that's not going to be the reason why you're sending your child there Mm -hmm. and you don't want the tribunal thinking effectively this is a parent who just wants a really you know a a kind of all singing all dancing independent education on the public purse and it's not going to be the reason why it's ordered either and it's never that it's never the reason why the parent wants it it's never the reason why it's ordered and I completely get that because who you know of course you would want that for your child you know you've watched your child struggling in state education or or you know kind of mainstream education for years of course you're looking at this amazing school and thinking about all the wonderful things your child should do there but it's really important you know what why are they actually going there what 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 do they need from there that they can't get from anywhere else yeah Mm. exactly um i think that's i think that's what i think that's what parents have got to focus on really but i think if parents are unsure i would say because it is a big decision if they're unsure i think maybe getting that professional evidence and seeing and asking the professionals um ahead of time you know before you know even if you're going to submit your appeal um and you're saying to us if you are if you are using lawyers if you're not using lawyers um Mm. i would say if you're in two minds about a residential placement you might have seen one residential placement that you think is really lovely but it's very very far away you're only going to see um your son or your daughter you know in the holidays not even at the weekends and obviously that's a big deal for you if you're in two minds i would say get the expert evidence definitely and be led by that first of all so then you know I think a lot of the time when my clients are in two minds and we do that and the expert is saying yes they do need a residential then it does make their mind up for them if they're saying well they could probably cope in 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 either really then a lot of the time my my parents tend to say well if they can cope in both then I'd rather keep them with me yeah and of course, you're going to have a problem in the tribunal if the expert is saying they could cope in both, because it's not enough that they would benefit from a residential education. Yeah, it's, it's got to be yeah. necessary if they can access education on a day basis and your educational psychologist is of that view. They they will not get a waking day curriculum from the tribunal. They will not yeah. get a residential placement. Obviously, we've got to remember that it's not the Rolls Royce service um, that the local yeah. authority have got to provide. It's not what's um, exactly. ideal or what what would be best. Of course, it would be, you know, you know, exactly. the horse riding, the swimming would be brilliant for everybody, but it's what's totally. reasonably required. And I think yeah. that's what we've always got to remember as well. Yeah. And I think I mean, I think I would say. I, I, I imagine I mean, the, the, the cost of these things can mount up very quickly. Mm-hmm. What I would say, I mean, in an ideal world, I think in most cases you would have an educational psychology report. You would get that early. That would be an expert that has seen your child and assessed them in person, ideally, unless that's not possible for some reason. We saw that, you know, we managed in other ways during the pandemic. But ideally, they will see your child. Ideally, they would have seen your child in an educational setting yes. as well as as well as at home or in clinic. So ideally, 
I, I would say you need an educational psychology report. It's nice to also have a speech and language therapy report and an occupational therapy report if those needs are indicated. I mean, I don't know about you, so I'd say a good way to start might be to say to the EP, if you see anything that you think yes. requires, you know, let me know. And then the EP might say, oh, I think your child should be assessed by a speech and language therapist or an occupational therapist. Yeah. Um, physiotherapy evidence can be very useful for children with physical injuries. An independent social workers report, as we've said, can be very useful. Um, and in First. some cases where there's a sort of anxiety disorder, yes. a clinical psychologist or, or maybe ideally a psychiatrist would be a very useful thing to have as well. But always start with your EP because a good EP should be able to signpost you to the other evidence that you would need. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's um, obviously we're both aware that these these type of cases are not inexpensive. Um, mm. So it's I think it's a good way to try and if you are on a budget if you are trying to limit the expenses that you're paying for these reports is to start with your ep ask your yeah. ep to signpost what else is necessary what where else he or she needs to be assessed in and then take it from there yeah i think i think that's a good way of doing it i think we've probably covered everything on um waking day curriculum really um mm. and it's and it's sometimes I find that it's quite difficult to talk about sort of generally because each case is so individual and is so yeah. unique especially with these type of cases I think um you've done a fantastic job of explaining um what it is generally um how to go about it sort of what you might be faced with the difficulties um and I think what's been sort of pertinently clear from our discussion really is both of our experience has been that it is a last resort residential placements are last mm. resort it's not something that you decide on on a whim it's not a luxury that you just want everybody who's got a child with this in just like, oh yeah I'd love a residential placement for my child no it's not it doesn't, it doesn't work like that at all mm. um it is designed for the um most um serious of cases where young yeah. people are really not coping in their educational placements um, and I think it's important to remember that yeah I agree yeah um really grateful for your time charlotte i think it's been uh, it's been really useful for me to just go through this and talk about this again um and i always enjoy my discussions with you um i hope, it's been, really, <laughs> I hope it's been really beneficial for our listeners as well um thank you very much for listening um and charlotte i will speak to you soon okay thanks